0: Well, last week, if you were here, uh, what I shared about last week were were my sort of developing thoughts uh, along the lines that the gospel is explicitly and unapologetically formational. Uh, And by that, uh, what we unpacked, uh, I mean is that the, the gospel is not just about saving people, but about saving them to a new way of life, a new pattern of living. Or that the good news about Jesus is not just that he paid our debt, though he did, but that he also freed us from the power of sin so that a new pattern of living is now possible. Uh, We can summarize that dual truth like this. Uh, There is no one so lost that they cannot be saved, and no one so righteous that they will not be changed. Uh, I thought last week when I preached that, that was going to be a kind of one-off for me. Uh, But uh, due to unforeseen circumstances, I discovered late this week that I would have a chance to do a follow-up this morning. Uh, And so I decided that what we do is spend a little more time digging into the next logical question, which is, okay, great, but how does that change? How does that formation happen? Now, last week at the very end, I touched briefly on, on, I think, the three primary ways that we experience formation in the Christian life, that is through God's Word through his spirit, and through worship. Uh, And with this bonus week, what I'd like to do is drill down this morning on on exactly what we mean. What does it look like when we say that we are shaped by God's word and by his story? Now, the heart of this message is something I've preached before, but I think it'll be helpful, I hope it'll be helpful, to revisit it within the context of formation. And so what I'd like us to explore together this morning is this. What does it look like? What does it mean for us to be shaped, to be formed by God's story? How does reading and hearing and studying God's word form us? Well, I'd like to answer that this morning, or at least explore it, by doing a sort of case study together out of the book of Philemon. Uh, If you know me, you know that I love the book of Philemon. Uh, it's, It's great, it's a short book, but it's powerful. And what I think is really helpful this morning is that Philemon and Onesimus, the two main people concerned, are involved in a situation that is fraught with complications and risk and difficulty, and what we get to watch is how the Apostle Paul instructs both of them into how they need to allow God's story to shape them in that very specific situation, and I think it's an example that we can learn from that will be helpful for us in our own lives. Well, let me start by giving you just a little bit of background for the letter. First, you need to know that the letter chiefly concerns two people, as I mentioned, Onesimus and Philemon. Uh, Onesimus was a former slave of Philemon, and at some point in the past, he ran away from Philemon. And it, it seems likely that when he left, he may have stolen some money or some possessions from Philemon in order to help him on his escape and to help finance a new life somewhere else. Based on what we read in verse 10, Onesimus becomes a follower of Jesus through the ministry of Paul while Paul was in prison. And then he continues to care for Paul while Paul is in chains. Given Paul's comments in verse 19, Philemon also likely received salvation through the ministry of Paul. So at the time Paul writes this letter, he's in the unique position of knowing that both men are followers of Jesus because they both accepted Jesus as their savior and lord uh, uh, through the ministry of Paul. And Paul knows something else that turns out to be crucial in the situation. He knows the Roman story, the story of the Roman Empire. And he knows that this is the story that would have f- shaped and formed both men for most of their lives. He knows that this Roman story would tell Onesimus that he would be crazy to return to his former owner voluntarily, he was free. He had a new life, and he owed Philemon nothing. What is more, he could guess that if he went back, only pain and suffering would await him with his former owner. According to that story, Onesimus has been oppressed by Philemon, and he should be happy to be rid of him. On the other end, Paul also knows that the Roman story would tell Philemon that as a citizen and as a slave holder, he needs to make a point and possibly an example of Onesimus. If he doesn't, the story would tell him, he opens the door to the possibility that all of his slaves might take advantage of him the way that Onesimus has. And what's worse, that could spread out into the wider world, threatening the stability of Roman society. And that's why, should he think it appropriate, Roman law would have allowed Philemon to put Onesimus to death for his crimes. Or, should he desire to be merciful, he could merely demand repayment several times over, ensuring that Onesimus would remain a slave for life. Those are the dominant stories shaping the lives of Philemon and Onesimus. uh, Dominant stories in the Roman world. The question this morning... The question for Paul, as he pens this letter, is will they choose instead, as followers of Jesus, to be shaped by God's story? Because make no mistake, that is exactly what Paul is asking them to choose. He implores them, on the basis of their shared allegiance to Jesus, to be shaped instead by Jesus and his story of forgiveness and reconciliation. In a moment, I'm going to read to you the book of Philemon uh, from, a, from an unusual translation. It's a contemporary translation called the Kingdom New Testament. And what I'd like you to do as I read is to listen, or if you're following along, look for the ways that, that Paul is directing them, almost like a director with actors, telling them, listen, you live within God's story. Here's how to live within that new story. So if you'd like to follow along, turn to Philemon. Here's the letter Paul writes. Uh, I should have mentioned earlier, uh, this is a letter. Paul is sitting with Onesimus. He learns of the story. Paul writes this letter, and he hands it to Onesimus and asks him, asks him to voluntarily return and to take this letter. And this is what he writes. Paul, a prisoner of King Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to our beloved Philemon, our colleague and partner, to Aphia, our sister, and Acrippus, our comrade-in-arms, and to God's people who meet in their house. May grace and peace be upon you from God our Father and King Jesus the Lord. I always thank my God when your name comes up in my prayers, because I've heard of your love and faithful loyalty toward the Lord Jesus and to all God's people. My prayer is this, that the partnership which goes with your faith may have its powerful effect in realizing every good thing that is at work in us to lead us "'into the king. "'You see, my dear brother, "'your love gives me so much joy and comfort. "'You have refreshed the hearts of God's people. "'Because of all of this, "'I could be very bold in the king, "'and I could order you to do the right thing. "'But because of love, I'd much rather appeal to you. "'Yes, it's me, Paul speaking, an old man, "'as I am now a prisoner of King Jesus. "'I am appealing to you about my child.' the one I have fathered here in prison, Onesimus, Mr. Useful. There was a time when he was useless to you, but now he's very useful to you and to me. I'm sending him to you for your decision. Yes, I'm sending the man himself, and this means I'm sending my own heart. I would have liked to have kept him here with me so that he could have been your representative to me, serving me in the chains of the gospel. But I didn't want to do anything without your knowing about it. That way, when you did the splendid thing that the situation requires, it wouldn't be under compulsion, but of your own free will. Look at it like this. Maybe this is the reason he was separated from you for a while, so that you could have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but as much more than a slave, as a beloved brother Beloved, especially to me, but how much more to you, both as part of your household and in the Lord? So, anyway, if you recognize me as a partner in your work, receive him as though he was me. And if he's wronged you in any way or owes you anything, put that down on my account. This is me, Paul, writing in my own hand I'll pay you back. Oh, and far be it for me to remind you that you owe me your very life. Yes, my brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in the King. As I write this, I'm confident that you'll do what I say. In fact, I know that you'll do more than I say. But at the same time, get a guest room ready for me. I'm hoping you see that through your prayers, I'll be granted a visit to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in King Jesus, sends you his, his greetings. So do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my colleagues here. The grace of the Lord, King Jesus, be with your spirit. That's a piece of real history right there. Here's the first thing I notice. Paul tells them that they need to allow God's story to reshape their identities. Now, it's easy to miss this, I think, because we're used to the language today. We're used to the language that Paul employs here. But try and see this with fresh eyes. From the beginning of this letter all the way through, Paul insists that they see themselves and each other according to their new identities in Jesus. To pick just a few examples, uh, he opens the letter. Paul does, uh, with greetings to Philemon as a dear brother and a fellow worker in the gospel, fellow worker in the gospel. He saturates the letter with the language of God's family. God is their father. Philemon and Onesimus and Paul are therefore brothers. Paul uses, of course, the very vivid image of Onesimus being his son, fathered while Paul was in prison. And of course, there are reminders at the beginning and all the way through that Jesus is the king. He is their king. He is the Lord. Paul insists all the way through that living in God's story, if they as followers of Jesus are going to live in God's story, it's going to require them embracing the new identities they have received in Jesus. And when we get to verses 15 and 16, we get to see why this is so critical Because here Paul makes his plea. He holds up the two competing stories to Philemon, the Roman story and God's story. And he implores Philemon to choose to live in God's. According to the Roman story, Onesimus was his slave and his property. But Paul says, no more. You live in God's story now. And you need to be shaped by that story He takes the situation, he pries it free of the Roman story, and he situates it back in God's story, and he says, what if, what if, Philemon, this happened? Not so that you might be harmed, but so that the kingdom of God might triumph in the midst of an evil world. Perhaps, he says, this happened so that you might receive Onesimus back no longer as a slave, but now as a beloved brother. Now, don't underestimate what he's saying here. This is a breathtaking overturning of the Roman narrative. In the Roman story, Onesimus is running away, his theft. They were crimes to be punished. But in God's story, Paul says, they have become an opportunity for reconciliation and even for celebration because a slave became a brother. It's a beautiful story, I think, but to live in that story, Paul tells them that they need to allow it to radically reshape their identities. Uh, there's a woman named Bertha Bracey, who was born in England in the late 1800s. Uh, and she turned, when she turned 18, she joined the Quakers, the Society of Friends. Uh, this was right at the same time that the world, world War I broke out. Uh, She lived in England during the war, and she saw firsthand the tremendous damage and destruction, the toll on human life. Uh, It's an estimate, but but she would have seen that most of the men of her generation in England, roughly one in four would die over the next four to five years in war with Germany and Austria-Hungary. And yet, when the war ended... She looked at the continent and saw that there were a lot of people in Germany and Austria-Hungary who were in desperate need of help, desperate need of food. And so she went over to Germany and to Austria-Hungary to serve those people. Now what's amazing is not just what she did, but when she did it. She lived at a time where the dominant narrative in her world and her culture and her society was a narrative of allies and enemies. The US and France were their allies, and, Ger- and Germany and Austria-Hungary, they were the enemy. They were threatening them, they were killing them. That was the story that was shaping her world. And yet she and many like her within the Society of Friends refused the identities given to them in that story. They refused to see everybody else in the world as either an ally and an enemy. They said, no, we are the children of God and these are people that he has created in his image and he loves them. In the 1920s in Germany, as rampant inflation took over the Weimar Republic, hundreds of thousands of Germans were on the verge of starving to death. And these people, who so recently had been her enemies, she and many like her arranged for a massive organization to feed thousands and thousands of children. It's estimated that their efforts uh, saved a million German children from starvation. Uh, it had such an enormous impact on the German people that they named it, as the Germans are wont to do, uh, the Quaker Speisung, the, the Quaker Feeding. And it happened because they chose to be shaped not by the story of war, not by the story of allies and enemies, but to find their identity instead in God's story. And the same, I think, is true for us today. Today, If we're going to be shaped by God's story, we too are going to need to choose to embrace the identity we have received in Christ over and against the different identities that are offered to us by our culture and our world. And that means we need to learn to accept and to believe that we are who God says we are. And in one sense, I think that is the main thrust of this letter to both Philemon and Onesimus. Paul is saying, look, now that you are followers of Jesus, neither one of you is free to decide that you are anyone other than who God has declared you to be in Christ. And God, Paul says, has declared you to be brothers. You are therefore not free to pretend that you are still a slave and an owner. God's story has made you family And you must allow that story to shape the way that you see yourselves and each other. Accepting those new identities is one of the primary ways that we allow God's story to shape our lives. Second, Paul calls Philemon and Onesimus to recognize their place chronologically within the plot of God's story and then to live within it. Being shaped by God's story means living, that is, behaving and speaking in a way that is appropriate to what has come before and to what lies ahead. We are called, in light of what God has already done on the cross and what he promises to do one day, we are called to live within that part of the story, to live on that trajectory between the cross and the second coming. All right, imagine with me, if you would, uh, a scenario that's unfortunately common to many people right now, but imagine that a few years ago, you found your dream house. It was a stretch for for you financially, uh, but maybe you and your spouse were both working, you had good jobs, and you thought, you know, this is the house we've been dreaming of, we've been waiting for, let's just do it. And so you do it, you dive in, you sell your current house, you buy the new house, and it is a little bit of a stretch, but but things are fine. You've arranged your finances. You're going to be okay. And then COVID happens, right? And one of you, your company goes out of business, and all of a sudden you go from two incomes to one. And now you're stressed all the time because you are right at your very limit. Uh, you know that if you can't continue working a, a, a significant amount of overtime. You are, you're going to lose your house. You're going to be foreclosed. And so every day, you're, you're racked with that stress and with that pressure. Every night, you lay awake thinking about where you can, you can shave a little extra off, how you can make sure that you get a few more hours. And then one day, you go into work and you discover uh, that someone has known about your situation. They heard what happened to your spouse. And unbeknownst to you, uh, they have paid off the whole entire remainder of your mortgage. All of a sudden, this one crushing weight that that weighed on you every hour of every day is just gone in a moment. Imagine how that would feel, how freeing that would be. Imagine how that would change your life, your greatest source of stress and debt, just gone in an instant, paid in full. I don't know about you, but if that were me, I would expect to be much less stressed. I'd expect to work less overtime. I mean, this is just me, but I would, ex- I would plan to eat out more. Uh, I-, I would expect to see less of my boss and a great deal more of my family. I would imagine you would be more generous to others. After all, how could you be stingy toward others when you have been given so much that, friends, we could call the logic of the debt forgiven. And that is the subtext behind this entire letter that Paul writes to Philemon. The debt forgiven in Christ, and it's right there just under the surface the whole time, and every once in a while, it peeks through, as with Paul's kind of comical reminder to Philemon, oh, by the way, you owe me your very self, your very life, Paul's reminding them, he is asking Philemon and Onesimus to live as though Jesus has already paid the price for all of their sins, because he has. He's asking them to behave, to live as if Jesus laid down his life so that the two of them could be reconciled with each other, because he did. He's asking them to live within that Story, the story of Jesus' victory on the cross. Because if their debts have been paid, both of them, if Onesimus's debts and Philemon's debts have both been paid in full by the blood of Jesus, how on earth, Paul asks, can they continue to live as though they haven't? To do so would be to deny the cross, indeed, if not in word. That friends, is what it means, what it looks like to be shaped by God's story. It means first allowing God's story to shape our identity, learning to believe that we are who God says we are and everyone else is who God says they are too. It means learning to recognize our place in the plot of God's great story of redemption and rescue But there's one more lesson, too, I think we need to learn from Philemon this morning. And that is, being shaped by God's story is often going to come with a cost. And one cost, the most obvious one, is that we are no longer free to write our own story. You know, what I always think of when I read this is how beautiful and wonderful and compelling this sounds to me when everything is good. But it's amazing how when I am wronged, when I am owed, when I have been hurt, that I want to run back to those other stories. I want to run back to stories of justice and retribution and of people getting what they deserve. But of course, those are the very moments when I need to be shaped most by God's story to remember that I too was a debtor that I too have caused hurt, and that when I was an enemy of God, Jesus died for me. And here's the thing. If I actually believe that, if you actually believe that, then it has to change the way we respond to those who hurt us and owe us and wrong us. If it doesn't, then we deny the gospel by what we do. I want to make it clear, if I haven't already, that what Paul asks of both these men is costly. It comes with costs and risks to them both. Philemon, listen, I know and I am so grateful that we live in a world where everyone recognizes the evil of human slavery. But Philemon, from his point of view in his world, has been robbed and betrayed by someone he trusted. He has On, on his side, he has Roman law and Roman justice, He has been wronged and he is owed a debt and he is within his legal Roman rights to exact retribution. And what Paul is asking him is to set all of those things aside to eat the cost of what was stolen and to forgive the hurt. Paul is asking him to not stand on his rights as a Roman but to stand instead on his status as a fellow debtor forgiven in Jesus I have to wonder, if that were us, would we be quick to do that? I don't know. And if anything, what Paul asks of Onesimus is even more dangerous. It's borderline crazy. Paul asks Onesimus, who to all appearances has successfully escaped slavery, to return to his former owner voluntarily, on his own, and for no other reason, no other reason, except for the reputation of the gospel. And Paul asks, and by the way, Onesimus does return, with both of them knowing full well that Philemon's within his rights to put Onesimus to death. He is risking literally his freedom and his life. And all Onesimus has for protection is this little letter that Paul wrote for him and the power of God's story to transform lives. And talk about being shaped by God's story. Listen, we all know that in our world today, there are many other stories out there right now who are shaping us, shaping other people every day. Stories from the political left and the political right. Stories from Hollywood and social media, from the New York Times and from Fox News. And it's tempting, I'm aware, I'm tempted too, to live in those stories Sometimes they offer us exciting identities. Sometimes a a mission, a meaningful mission. And other times, a vision of a fun and vibrant life. But God has called you to live in his story of rescue and redemption and the renewal of all creation. And for my money, no other story offers greater dignity and meaning, greater purpose and fulfillment And yet that too will come with a cost, just as it does for Philemon and Onesimus. But if you have given your allegiance to Jesus, that allegiance requires being shaped by his story. And if you want to be shaped by his story, let me suggest that you start, just as a practical matter, start by immersing yourself more in his story and less in those other stories. This is something I've been thinking a lot about recently and over this past year. We are always shaped, every single one of us, by the stories around us. We just are. There's no way around it. Uh, The only question for us is, what story is shaping our lives? And I have to believe that the answer to that question is going to depend to a spectacular amount on which stories we spend the most time immersed in. Which stories are we listening and exposing ourselves to day in and day out? If it's a different story, that story is going to shape you, whether you want it to or not. If we want to be shaped by God's story, we need to be immersed in his story. And yes, that means reading to it, listening to it, studying it, but it also means doing the work of figuring out through prayer and trembling in day-to-day life what it looks like for us to live within that story, to live between the cross and the second coming. If we spend all our time with the other stories, we're going to be shaped by those stories. If we spend our time with God's story, we'll be shaped by his story. Let me leave you with a, a note of great hopefulness. It's the best part of our case study, and it's simply this. They did it. Philemon and Onesimus embraced their new identities, and they chose to live in light of what God has done in Christ. If they didn't, we wouldn't have this letter. Philemon, or Onesimus would have taken it, he would have thrown it away, and gone on merrily with his new life, but he didn't. And when they did it, When we do it, what happens is that just for a moment, we pull those around us into God's story, even if just for a moment. We embody the new pattern of living. We reveal the presence of the kingdom of God in this world. Listen, I am certain that some of Philemon's neighbors, probably most of them, were not yet believers in Jesus. Perhaps others in his household did not yet call Jesus their Lord. And they would have known without a doubt that Onesimus had run away and they would have known that he was back. And imagine what they would think when they find out that he wasn't dragged back in chains, but that he had returned on his own and voluntarily. Imagine what they would think when they discover that Philemon has not punished him, but forgiven him. Imagine what they would think When they discover that he has welcomed him back, not as a slave, but as a brother. What in the world, they would ask each other, could possibly explain this crazy behavior? What in the world, they would ask, Philemon and Onesimus could have possibly caused you to behave like this? Well, they would say, we were hoping you would ask, can we tell you a story about a man named Jesus? Would you bow with me as we pray? Jesus, we praise you together this morning because we believe that your story, God's story, reaching its its climax on the cross and its final fulfillment in the fullness of God's kingdom here on earth is the greatest story We confess together that that it is the story, more than any other, that gives dignity and meaning and purpose to each and every single human life. We confess this morning that it is the only hope for peace and salvation in a world fraught with sin and suffering. God, we have placed our hope in you and in that story this morning. And it is our urgent hope, our prayer, that you would be at work in us by your spirit, by your word, and through worship to shape us so that we might live appropriately as people in your story. We pray, Father, that by by what we say and what we do, uh, by how we think, that we might reveal to others the presence of your kingdom and the lordship of Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.